Welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast, where we have great conversations with unity-minded Christians. Our goal is to encourage unity of the Spirit within the Stone Campbell Movement and beyond. We believe unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and join us as we seek to fulfill Jesus' prayer that we may all be one. And now, here are your co-hosts, Megan Rollins and Kevin Witham. Hello and welcome back to another podcast from the Common Grounds Unity. We are so excited that you've tuned in and today we have a special guest and I can't wait for you to hear all about him. But before I do that, I'm Megan Rawlings, your co-host, joined with me by my co-host, Kevin Witham. And Megan, it's great to be back with you today, and I'm uh, thrilled to be welcoming our our guest. Uh, Andy Fleming, along with his wife Tammy, have served as a full-time evangelist and women's minister for almost 40 years in the International Churches of Christ. And Andy's a Canadian. You'll hear about that. Tammy's an American. They met at the Boston Church of Christ in 1985 and later married on the Stockholm Mission Planting in early 1987. So they've had a, a lifetime together as partners in marriage and partners uh, in ministry, and they've invested their lives uh, in the churches in Scandinavia, the UK, Los Angeles, California, the former Soviet Union. So what a varied life of ministry and a diversity of places. Uh, they've lived in Moscow, Russia, back from 1991 to 1999, some very interesting years to be there. And they oversaw the planting then of 24 new congregations, the largest of which are currently Moscow and Kiev, each with about 1,500 members. They've worked with the ICOC's worldwide administration, have overseen mission efforts in the Middle East, and they currently serve together on the ICOC teacher service team, Church Health and Growth Task Force uh, for Andy, and then the ICOC women's service team for Tammy. Uh, boy, they're fluent in various languages. Uh, Andy is currently pursuing a doctor of ministry in missional leadership from Abilene Christian University, where I believe he's also done some other uh, grad work and also spent a couple of years, I learned earlier, at my alma mater, Harding University. Um, Tammy, she's a certified advanced grief recovery method specialist. She's not with us on the podcast, but uh, we just want to want you to know what, what a great partner Andy has in life and ministry. Uh, from their home in Kiev, they work in cooperation with the Greater Eurasian Mission Society and Eurasian Churches leadership to strengthen the disciples and the churches uh, that they helped plant and encourage and to remain true to the faith. So, Andy, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your life, your ministry, your spiritual journey, um, and again, welcome. Thank you, uh, Kevin. Thank you, Megan. It's really a pleasure just to uh, share some time with you guys. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I have, I have, it's an interesting conversation to talk about the Stone Campbell movement and, and all the various, uh, offshoots that have been produced, uh, from over, uh, from over the, over the last two centuries. Uh, part of that is because, uh, I grew up in the Churches of Christ acapella and, uh, my family goes back five generations into the Churches of Christ. So that's a long story. I won't get into that, but, the effect it had on me was at the age of six, uh, I really had it on my heart. I believe God put it on my heart to become a, a missionary and actually held on to that dream 
uh, with two hands through my youth and uh, had a great friend go to Papua New Guinea um, in the early 70s and uh, ended up uh, uh, apprenticing with him on the mission field in 1980 after finishing uh, my university degree at ACU, Abilene Christian. So, um, yeah, I'm doing something that I had dreamed about doing when I was six years old. And so that's a pretty awesome thing. I'm 63 years old now. Um, well, what can I say? Uh, it's been a, it has been a journey for sure. Um, Tell I, us I, a little I, bit. And, oh, go, go ahead. Didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, tell us a little bit about your family history within the Stone Campbell movement. Um, here you are, somebody who has served in ICOC churches for so many years. You've got a background in acapella churches. Your, your history goes back pretty far, and it's, it's deep. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, um, the details are kind of thin, but my great-great-grandmother was baptized sometime in the 1830s. And uh, then I had uh, the next generation was a little dodgy, but um, the, the my grandfather then w- was a member of the uh, of the Churches of Christ, and he married an, a woman whose parents went back another generation. So uh, we we're pretty deep into uh, the Churches of Christ. Um, we, I grew up in the small town of Beamsville which, to be honest, was probably the epicenter of the Churches of Christ a cappella in Canada. That's where Great Lakes Christian College was. Um, I got to see as a kid a lot of, uh, you know, uh, um, pretty famous preachers from the South that would come up and visit in Canada. And because my parents were quite successful, my dad was a chicken farmer who um, really— uh, taught me a lot of great things about life. He, he was an elder in the local congregation, uh, but he actually supported, and, and I won't say, say numbers, but a number of families were supported from his uh, personal contributions. And as a child, I grew up with these missionaries visiting our homes and sharing their stories. And uh, I'm sure that's what it affected me the most that by the time I was six, I wanted to be a missionary. I just heard enough to realize that there's something meaningful to be done out there, and the gospel needs to be taken. So we had uh, people we were connected to in Southeast Asia, in India, and also in Europe. My mother desperately hoped, hoped I wanted to go plant a church in Paris, but uh, I ended up wanting to become a Bible translator and living in the jungle of Papua New Guinea, which uh, she sadly said she would never come and visit me if I did that. Uh, as it was, though... Uh, uh, a number of different interesting circumstances. I, I came back from Papua New Guinea, started some graduate work in linguistics, heard about the Boston Church of Christ, which was at that time just would have been considered part of the discipling movement within the Churches of Christ, and uh, decided to go down and see what was going on and was very impressed. It was, I think what hit me the most was for the first time in my life, I got a vision of being a missionary without leaving North America. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think I'd encountered a church with such an evangelistic vision. And so uh, I took that back home with me to Canada. It was 1982. And um, I tried to, tried to kick some of that stuff into, into gear. And, uh, um, but, but after about 
six months, got the feeling, you know what? I need to go have somebody train me in this. Uh, I, uh, the uh, excitement was wearing off a little bit. And so I decided to shift my graduate work down to Boston and actually only uh, I, I, I did one semester and then I went into the full-time ministry because I, because I just got more and more excited about the whole prospect of doing uh, ministry, even in the United States, which or Canada, which is really shocking to me because I was a third world missionary completely. Um, it's a long story, but uh, God put Scandinavia on my heart, and uh, as I was wrestling with that, it wasn't actually something I wanted to do; it was something I felt called to do. But as I researched Scandinavia, I, I actually got attracted to the Soviet Union. So in 1984, I began preaching and uh, and talking about mission work into the Soviet Union, which was pretty much impossible at the time, mm-hmm. but uh, saw Scandinavia as a launching point. And God actually opened a, a number of interesting doors for us. So uh, my wife and I planted a church in Stockholm in 1986. And uh, then um, we... Uh, it, that, that church spread into the other Scandinavian countries. Uh, in Copenhagen, one of my um, protégés that I'd tra- trained in the ministry uh, did really wanted to go to Russia with me, but he just prayed that he could meet a Russian who could go with me. And he'd never even met a Russian before, like anywhere on the street in Copenhagen. And lo and behold, within three weeks, he met a six-foot-five Russian who at age 19 was... Uh, working on a uh, uh, phys- physics degree at the University of Copenhagen and a co-publisher of an article in the like European Journal of Physics. And he was the son of two Russian Olympic athletes. So uh, this guy was amazing, spoke great English, and he would actually become my translator uh, when we planted the church in 1991. So from the churches in Scandinavia, we actually converted the future leader of our church in Riga and the future leaders of our church in Tallinn, Estonia, Riga, Latvia. And then this guy who was my right hand in the building of the Eurasian churches. So uh, it's interesting because no one knew how all that would work out. And yet God had a plan for it. And uh, it was quite amazing. It's amazing when we entrust ourselves to him to see the way he opens doors and clears the roads and the paths. What a story. Absolutely. Hey, let me ask you a question. Since you've been everywhere, all over the world, you've planted these churches, you've trained people up. Um, that's something that I think all parts of the restoration movement are interested in doing. Um, but I th- And I think we could do it together. It would be great to learn from one another. But um, there are some uh, disunifying things happening. So my question to you is, what are your observations about why this um, unity movement has difficulties being unified? Well, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's a similar history with, the, with the, what then became the International Churches of Christ. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of the statistical analysis that I published three years ago, but... Um, I'm, I'm sort of the stats guy of uh, the ICOC. And so I went back and sort of looked at our history. And what's interesting is um, there was a, the, a crossroads ministry, which was basically focusing on campuses in the uh, mid-60s. 
that um, had quite a lot of impact around the United States as far as reaching out and, and converting university students. And uh, they would do that usually as a campus ministry attached to a local Church of Christ congregation. Um, because they were a network, it, it, they didn't quite fit. I, I think they had some connections to each other that not everybody in the uh, Churches of Christ were comfortable with. I also think uh, there were some overly ambitious people who uh, wanted more control over what was going on and uh, couldn't see that happening in the current structure of the C of C, uh, the Churches of Christ. I do want to say that the, the Churches of Christ are congregationally autonomous, but when you consider the impact and the monies put into the journals and publishing houses and then higher uh, training areas of education, uh, that's not exactly autonomous. In, in other words, it's autonomy, but the parachurch organizations, I think, uh, at least what the church I grew up in, had maybe more influence than any individual congregation. And so it's a little bit of a, uh, a, little bit of a paradox because uh, as high as auto autonomy is rated, there are absolutely other connectors that kept the churches just from being completely autonomous from each other, at least by influence. Um, the Boston movement, which eventually became the ICOC, uh, again, they uh, what what uh, what Kip McKean did, who was the evangelist in Boston, he gathered together all of these sort of um, splintered campus ministries and uh, brought them together, and, and through his example of what he did in Lexington, uh, started to create local congregations based just from a campus ministry. And so uh, he ended up bringing all that together. Now, why I say that is, it's, that was a, from the time that the Boston Church started, or I would say this, the Crossroads Ministry started, until the time that Boston kind of unified all that into a movement, it was about 22 years which actually is about the same amount of time that Campbell and Stone were working independently of each other and then kind of found each other. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, too, at that moment when uh, the Boston movement became uh, ver very much a single movement, there was about 22,000 members. And when the Stone-Campbell movement came together, historical estimates are at about 20,000. So actually, the, the time segment and numbers are similar. Then you ask, so why did something that started with a unity motif, why did it fail? I think there's a plus and a minus to charismatic leadership. And I think, you, I think looking back at it, my own personal opinion, I don't think Alexander Campbell was pleased with everything that he built. In other words, I think he was so charismatic and got people behind him. Uh, I think people got the next generation following him got quite set in their ways. We're, we're not the explorers of scripture the way he had approached it, but maybe the problem was he finished a systematic theology, published it, and no one felt like they had to really take it any further. So I think what happened in, uh, in, in the sort of the restoration movement, to be honest, was it, it, it solidified in certain perspectives and whereas it had been vibrant and collaborative and bringing people together, the truth is the only success really of note was 
the Stone and Campbell movements coming together. Um, the ICOC was definitely even less successful than that because it was just unifying people very, very like-minded uh, and, and had some kind of similar past and connection. I do think there was so much to be gained by the Stone-Campbell connection because uh, they, they were so different from each other. And, and, but, but there was a dominant personality in that equation, and I think we all know that that was Alexander Campbell. And I think in the long run, that had more influence on where, to, where things went. And I think this is what is really important, that we appreciate diversity in spiritual manifestation of gifts, etc. And we, we are, are uh, content with the tension. We don't, we, we are, um, don't fight against the tension. So there's great pressure to, to become all the same, to homogenize, to conform to each other. And I think uh, that's, that's where things got weak. And, and then, of course, then when you get more solid, then you start splitting. And so, you know, within 100 years, the Stone-Campbell movement was already splintering into some pretty significant divisions. Um, I think uh, I, I had a very interesting experience reading a Disciples of Christ version of Alexander Campbell's life uh, as, as a course. And it was very different because growing up in the a cappella churches, uh, Campbell's early days are sort of what I heard about. But reading this Disciples of Christ viewpoint, they were more interested in a lot of things he was writing and talking about in his later days. So it's interesting, even one person kind of developed and then people kind of pick and choose what they want. So, yeah, that, I mean, that, there was a lot there, but uh, I think Andy, it's difficult. What, you go ahead. What great observations um, and, and a fascinating look at that. And, and it, so it leads me to ask, um, as you reflect, I, I was, you know, early in ministry uh, and uh, early in life when the Acapella Churches of Christ and the what we used to term the crossroads movement. You you mentioned the discipling movement that you know ultimately uh, becomes the ICOC or out of that the ICOC's form. So you've got background in both, and boy, I remember kind of living through that. As you reflect on the division at that time that happened um, between the COC and the ICOC, the Churches of Christ and the International Churches of Christ, as you look at that, what could we have done differently on both sides of that conflict uh, mm -hmm. that, that may have made a difference for unity moving forward. Well, if I might add an interesting theological perspective, um, if you look in the New Testament, how many movements are there? And actually what's interesting is we see at least two very defined movements. So Paul says in Galatians that, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and he, Paul, was the apostle to the Gentiles. And then we can actually see some radicals in, let's just call it Peter's movement, who wanted to Judaize the Gentile Christians. That, that by no means was everybody, but you look at the, the carefulness which Paul entered Jerusalem in Acts 20, 21, uh, you realize that there was there was some tension between these two, uh, really, I'll, I'll call them movements, because if we call the whole 
church a movement, then uh, that doesn't really fit in with the way that the ICC have used the word, and maybe even the Restoration Movement uses the word. Um, I think that a movement is something within Christianity, and not it, it'd be wrong to try to say that the, the New Testament church was a single movement only if you call Jesus the, uh, the, the leader of that movement. So when you talk about men and, you know, charismatic leadership is a, it's a two-edged sword. We need charismatic leadership, but charismatic leadership brings dangers with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say uh, what happened then was there was a lack of tolerance and political maneuvering on both camps. I was already out on the mission field. And to be honest, I, I, I wish I'd been more involved in the conversations. Um, uh, where I was in Scandinavia at the time, um, the mainline churches had, had over, say, from the mid-50s until 1980, uh, they'd had at least eight different families there for a combined period of like 200 years, like 200 years of missionaries. I mean, 200 missionary years. Um, But there was only one congregation standing and it had nine members when, when Mm -hmm. we arrived. Um, And the weirdest thing is we were very good friends until all the rhetoric started. Next thing I know, I was, you know, I was being uh, cast out of fellowship from the from this guy, and I'm like going, you, "You're really going to do this to me? Like, you, there's nine of you. Like, are we, <laughs> you know?" But yeah. sadly, uh, he was being supported financially, and that that he had to maintain this party line. Um, it's very sad because uh, uh, Kip McKean, who you know, the history has proven, got uh, too much. Um, too much of his own identity and ego got caught up with being the leader of a movement. Um, so to be honest, he was not helpful in this question because uh, he wanted the independence and he also had a vision of a role for himself that quite honestly was not what anyone ever could have predicted uh, in the early 80s. It, it, it developed over time and uh, he became enamored with something that happened. But you know, coming back to this example from the first century, I just think we need to be comfortable with the idea that there are multiple movements trying to be what God wants them to be. Uh, and I will call a movement sort of a collection of, of uh, churches. So rather than use the word denomination, which if we're going to be technical, we have to own that as a word that describes us as much as anybody from a you know, sociological point of view, mm-hmm. I'd rather describe us as a movement and then, then try to find out how we can be a movement that is being sanctified for God. So I, I kind of have a little phrase in my mind, either we're a human movement that God sanctifies or we're a, uh, we're a movement of God that we, uh, uh, what would be the other word, not vulgarize, but we, we make it not, we don't sanctify it. We actually humanize it. We actually take, take away from what God wants. And so, I think we need to think of ourselves as working collectively together to build something that 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 folds within the the boundaries of God's kingdom. That 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 it's a movement of churches in in agreement. So unity doesn't have to be defined by all being longing to the same movement. I guess that's really what I want to say. I think mm-hmm. unity can be something that we agree upon. And I think if if Kip McKean had realized 
his true calling, he should have seen himself as the starter of many movements. Uh, and, and, and what I mean by that is that we, we planted churches in, in every corner of the world and over 160 countries, um, trying to keep that looking, con- like conform that uh, was not a good idea. Uh, it Americanized our, uh, you know, our presence in a number of places, and uh, it also uh, took the focus off of really understanding forms of spirituality within a native culture and got too much about importing. So um, we had various, thing, various levels of effectiveness when it came to the foreign mission work, and uh, I think part of that had to do with how we viewed what we were trying to accomplish. I personally, uh, thanks to a lot of the training I got at Abilene Christian, always was trying to work myself out of a job. So after being 13 years on the mission field, I came back to North America uh, and left in charge, you know, seven couples uh, that that we had raised up to, to lead that area of the world. And so uh, I felt like that was a very successful thing, but it was it was not the typical model, and I and I had some conflicts myself with some others who wanted a very uh, um, authoritarian, top down kind of leadership model. I, I I actually think there's a place for a hierarchical model. Uh, it's just that that's the immature model. That's the immature phase of a church builder, and. If you're going to lead a church into maturity, you got to flatten that pyramid quite a lot so that there's a lot of diversity and team at the top and no one personality or even personality type will dominate the system. How interesting. You know, it makes me question you're telling me us about all these things, you know, uh, mistakes you've made or the... Uh, things that have worked and making sure that you have the groups on top. Let me ask you this. Are there big lessons, maybe one or two that we should be learning so that we don't repeat history when it comes to the unification of everyone? Well, I can tell you the, I I think one of the biggest mistakes made by the ICOC was that we, we read like, for example, the great commission, Matthew 28, the first part of it, got way more airtime than the second part of it. So there was way more energy in going and baptizing them than there was in teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. Mm. So making disciples, which is both of those things together, because making disciples, first you got to, you got to birth the disciple Mm -hmm. and then, uh, then, then you train that disciple. Um, and you know this same the same separation is found in uh, you know solid food and milk. It's found in uh, I planted and Apollos watered. In other words, there's a two phase growth cycle that we see quite clearly repeated in Scripture. And to be honest, uh, the ICOC was focused so much on the first phase, and we became I, I to this day I don't know of any group that had the worldwide spread that we did in the time uh, span that we did. But the truth is, our growth was always more on the fringe. It was like blowing up a balloon, like on the on the edge of the surface area, the growth was the most. 
that's because the model that we are following worked best with young churches and smaller churches. Like it, it expanded. And so, I mean, um, this model that we are following lacked depth. And this is where, sadly, uh, separating from the churches of Christ was a, was a great loss for us because we lost so much of the teaching, the, the, the heritage of Bible knowledge and all that kind of stuff. Um, that got separated from us. Now, some of us had, you know, I mean, in the ICOC, I was like a teacher of the law who had some good stuff in his storehouse and then had new stuff. You know, I was, <laughs> but, but sadly there wasn't that many of uh, like me in that uh, realm. And if you're all just got new stuff, that doesn't give enough perspective on, on the old stuff. And, and, and also you kind of get kind of in a group think there. So, you know, if I could do this differently, I think the the proper model for Boston, which was the beginning and the epicenter of everything, to send out a wave of evangelists and then send out a wave of teachers and then send out a wave of elder trainers, you know? So like, like if we'd have done this with more of a wave, but we sent out just one type and uh, didn't really build depth in, in our, in our ministry platform. And, and the word leader became more important than the word minister for many people. Whereas if we really understand ministry, leadership is just a segment of that. And if you're going to have the full ministry that I think God intends for the church, leadership is important structurally, but leadership should be outweighed by ministry. In other words, there's much, much more ministry that needs to be going on that isn't leadership. Uh, it's service, it's training, it's uh, taking care of needs. And, and, and so we were too narrow. And uh, I think that was why we ran into so many, so many issues in the early 2000s. That pastoral side of, of ministry That's right. and leadership that, that can easily go neglected when your ambition is, let's go take the world. Yeah. Um, Andy, and these have been, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I, from my, I don't want to use the word, mainstream Church of Christ experience, um, I came from a church fellowship, to be honest, that was neglectful in their discipleship. There was neglect. Yeah. But then I went to an environment that was a um, uh, little bit to the end of micromanagement, right? <laughs> like I went from <laughs> neglect to micromanagement. And if I had to choose between the two at the moment, I, I, I could see that. But at the moment, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go with micromanagement because uh, neglect just isn't getting the job done. But there was a point where that actually, of course, the man of God should avoid all extremes, right? So there's some kind of balance that needs to be found by giving people freedom, but also in making sure they're truly being trained and having spiritual formation. So like in most things, you get off balance and uh, the thing starts to go in the wrong direction. Well, so Andy, you've had, uh, you've had a lifetime thinking about these things, <clears throat> not just theorizing, but, but implementing and putting into practice, you know, things that you've, you've learned theologically and, and from both your, your ambitions for the kingdom and your study in the word here we sit all these years later after that initial rift, and here we've got you know great things happening in the Christian churches that side of mm -hmm. uh, of the movement. Why you know, here we here we are with this common grounds unity movement. I, lo I love your 
thought about movements. Boy, that really gives me something to think about. Um, why is it important to do this work that we're doing to try to repair these divisions within the various streams? And, you know, what are some of the benefits that you see from that and some practical ways for doing it? Well, the, the benefits are immense in that different histories bring different resources to the table. And um, it's just like, you know, when you're doing third world mission work, there's an interesting reciprocity that happens because there's a supporting congregations from countries with better economies. And they give this money to, you know, a dollar from the U.S. does so much more in India than it does in the U.S., right? I mean, so Mm -hmm. you, you also see this incredible return for what you're donating. But then you see the faith and you see the perseverance of these people living in much difficult situations. And that's a blessing back toward the people that are supporting. And I, and I think that rather than want things to be so homogenous, I think we've got to tr- try to find a unity without necessarily conformity, to find unity based in as few but important factors as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think the platform and some of the great rhetoric of the early restoration movement to be honest, we just haven't been doing the very things that we, you know, we set out to do. Um, I wrote a little piece about uh, an article in 1973. Yeah. Uh, Everett Ferguson wrote an article about the unity plea, the restoration plea. And I was 15 years old and I, I wrote a little uh, kind of tongue in cheek a little bit back at it uh, a few years ago because everything he described uh, which I totally agree with today and probably agreed with already now for quite a few decades, as a 15-year-old growing up in the church, I didn't see any of what he was talking about. Um, I thought we were the church that had arrived. I thought we got it all done. We were, you know, it was a finished product. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the restoration wasn't ongoing. And yet anyone that's really begun to examine this knows. But that's where we that's where we need to 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 restore. And I think every to be quite honest, I think every denomination needs to take seriously the call of Jesus to be unified with everyone who believes in the message that's been passed on to them. That's not compromising doctrine. But I think I think I, I wish we were better at showing our unity desire for all the Christian world. Uh, and it can start at home. I mean, the good thing about having sort of uh, cousins in the faith here is that... Uh, Without too much work, I think we can find more common ground and, uh, and, and increase our brotherhood with, with, in that way. But I think we have to understand that, that we can't change our history. Uh, we can change our future, but we don't need to. Unity doesn't have to be, again, everyone together under one umbrella unless that umbrella truly is Christ. If it's a worldly organization or a world or a earthly understanding of how the church should look, I think we've all got to be able to say, this is our best opinion about how to do things, but at some level, this is an opinion. And so we're not quite so married to our uh, practices uh, and a little more flexible in accepting others. Uh, at the same time, don't get me wrong, I'm a very biblical and, and want things to be very, 
as biblical as possible, as first century as possible. But at the same time, we got to give enough people enough space to be able to breathe as they consider what what might need to change or what what could be developed. So I I just want us I want us to learn from each other because we've on following different tracks we've developed different strengths and uh, uh, I know that the International Churches of Christ need more experience in pastoral care in conflict resolution in deeper theological training though though there are movement there are absolutely there is movement within the ICOC for these things we need we need it even more we're we're late to the game in some of this stuff Man, this conversation has been so great, but we are running out of time for this podcast. But you know what? I'm not done talking to you yet, and I don't think Kevin is either. So why don't we continue this conversation? Guys, make sure you tune back in next week and uh, hear what else we got to say. Kevin, say goodbye to the good people. Good to be with you, Megan. Andy, good to be with you. And by the way, I'll just say... Uh, Andy, uh, just talking to him earlier, he wrapped up, finished the writing of a book on Ecclesiastes. We can look forward to that coming out. And in our next podcast, uh, Andy, maybe you can tell us a little bit where folks can find some of your other writings that you've mentioned here. So, so good to have you with us. We look forward to having you back next podcast. Blessings, everyone. All right. See you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast with Megan and Kevin. Please check out CommonGroundUnity.org to learn more about who we are. There are plenty of resources, and you can subscribe to the weekly email articles, join the Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. We've also provided a link in the show notes for comments. You can ask questions or suggest topics and guests. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can do that too through the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.